Tired of blogs? <laughs> Me too. Moby Lives Radio starts now. From the intergalactic headquarters of Melville House Publishing in Hoboken, New Jersey, aka the left bank of New York City, it's Moby Lives Radio. Greetings, Earthlings. It's Saturday, the 14th day of January 2006. I'm Dennis Johnson. Welcome back to Moby Lives Radio in our new extended format. On today's show, we'll hear from UK reporter Mark Thwaite, Becky Kramer files a far-flung reader's report, and there'll be another edition of Men, Men, Men in Publishing. In the second half of the show, we have an extended interview with Philip Gravich, author of the stunning book of reportage about the Rwandan genocide. We wish to inform you that tomorrow we will be killed with our families. He recently became the editor of the Paris Review, and that's what we'll be talking about. But first... Here's a look at some news from the book world. Well, this just in. A centuries-long misunderstanding was cleared up earlier this week when New York mega-publisher Doubleday declared that the word nonfiction does not, in fact, mean not fiction. It means, according to Doubleday head Nan Talay's quote, whatever the fuck we need it to mean in order to sell the most books, close quote. The clarification came when the website The Smoking Gun uncovered the fact that the year's best-selling American book, A Million Little Pieces by James Frey, an Oprah selection, included numerous instances of what were previously known as lies and gross exaggeration, but which, Talais explained, were actually, quote, compelling commercial units, close quote. Meanwhile, although the findings came about three years after Page Six reporter Ian Spiegelman revealed in a Moby Lives interview that Frey had first circulated his book as fiction, New York Times reporter Ed Wyatt, after reading all about it on The Smoking Gun, filed his report on the case with the Times biannual article bashing the book publishing industry for not using fact checkers. Unfortunately, there were numerous errors in Wyatt's article, making it difficult to read, which were evident because the the New York Times, former employer of Judy Miller, doesn't use fact-checkers. In a related story, Ed Wyatt and numerous others in New York mainstream media were shocked, shocked to discover that an author who only appeared in public in a wig, enormous sunglasses, and other elements of disguise, and whose book was called The Heart is Deceitful Above All Things, was mm, a fraud. In a Monday New York Times story, Wyatt, taking a break from reading The Smoking Gun, reported that there was no J.T. Leroy, the elusive author who claimed to suffer from AIDS and regularly discussed his battle against drug addiction and the difficulties of life as a transgender person, was a fictional character, or as Nantales would say, a non-fictional character, played by a model named Savannah Knoop, concocted by Knoop's brother Jeffrey Knoop, and his wife, Laura Albert. Asked to comment about how she could do something so immoral as to create a character with AIDS in order to dupe the public into handing over its hard-earned cash, Knoop told the Times, I don't need this in my life right now. 
close quote, asked what she did need in her life right now, she said, quote, a publisher like Nantales. Elsewhere in the news, in Turkey to be exact, the Turkish government gave hints it was likely to drop its charges against novelist Orhan Pamuk for insulting Turkishness by mentioning to a magazine that the Armenian Holocaust had taken place. The government also decided not to bring new charges against Pamuk for insulting the Turkish military by saying that he found the overbearing Turkish army threatening to democracy. The Turkish government did say, however, that it was going to go ahead with its plans to sue the Kanuk family for insulting just about everything. And finally, James Risen's much-anticipated book, State of War, The Secret History of the CIA and the Bush Administration, was released even earlier than expected over the holiday. Risen is a reporter who, over a year ago, had uncovered the fact that George Bush had been conducting an illegal secret surveillance campaign. Risen's employer, the New York Times, set on the story through the election of the re-election of George Bush until apparently deciding they couldn't stand to be scooped by a book, perhaps out of the institutional peak that the book industry imitates the Times and its lack of fact-checkers. But anyway, they finally published Risen's report just before he could do it himself. Meanwhile, as the Senate panel begins an investigation into why the president did illegally what he could have done legally while still maintaining secrecy, hmm, what could it be? Could it be, oh, I don't know, that they were spying on non-terrorists? Sales for Risen's books book were, were reportedly good, even though readers were uncertain as to what section of the bookstore to look for it in. And that's the news for this edition of Moby Lives Radio. I'm Dennis Johnson. It's Saturday, January 14th, and here are some highlights of the week ahead in literary history. Sunday is the 15th, and on that day in 1839, French writer Victor Hugo finished writing The Hunchback of Notre Dame. Hugo had continuously postponed his deadline for delivering that book to his publishers. Despite his contract, he set to work writing two plays instead. The first play, Marion Delorme, was censored for its candid portrayal of a courtesan, which brought him great notoriety. But once he finally sat down to write The Hunchback of Notre Dame, he completed the massive novel in just four months. Monday is the 16th of January, and on that day in 1933, novelist and essayist Susan Sontag was born in New York City. Even as a youngster, Sontag was fiercely intellectual. She graduated from high school at age 15, went on to earn a bachelor's degree in philosophy from the University of Chicago after only two years of classes, then she went on to earn two master's degrees from Harvard, studied at Oxford and the University of Paris, until she finally moved to New York City in 1959. At age 30, she sent off her first manuscript, The Benefactor, to Farrar Strauss Giroux. They immediately bought the novel for a $500 advance, and FHG was to remain her publisher for decades. Though Sontag preferred to think of herself as a novelist, it was her essays that made her famous. Her 1964 Partisan Review essay, Notes on Camp, made her a celebrity at the age of 31. In it, she suggested that even bad art can be appreciated, that there can be a, quote, good taste of bad taste. 
In the late 60s and 70s, she turned her attention more and more towards politics and wrote mostly essays and nonfiction. She soon became one of America's foremost public intellectuals. Diagnosed with breast cancer in 1972, Sontag turned her illness into perhaps her best known work, Illness as Metaphor, while other critical works included AIDS and its metaphors and on photography. Interpretation, she wrote, is the revenge of the intellectual on art. Sontag died in 2004. Tuesday is January 17th, and on that day in 1860, Melville House author Anton Chekhov was born, or January 29th, according to the new calendar. Born into a large family in Tagorog, Russia, Chekhov was the grandson of serfs. As a young man, he supported his family by writing stories for magazines while simultaneously putting himself through medical school, where, tragically, he contracted tuberculosis. Chekhov published his first story collection, Motley Stories, in 1886, and his second, In the Twilight, just a year later. He continued to practice medicine throughout his life, often pro bono, which led his friends to complain about the long line of peasants constantly in front of his door. Chekhov wrote many plays, some of which were humorous one acts, but it was his longer tragedies that brought him fame and notoriety. And when critics viciously attacked his play, The Seagull, he vowed to give up playwriting altogether. He did not, though, and while staging The Cherry Orchard, Chekhov collapsed, dying shortly thereafter in 1904. I'm Valerie Marians, and that's this week in literary history. I know my chicken. This is Mark Thwaite, the UK correspondent for Moby Lives, and managing editor of ReadySteadyBook.com. And a belated Happy New Year to everybody listening to Moby Lives Radio from the UK. Bloomsbury, the UK publisher of Harry Potter books, said on Wednesday it was to, uh, on track to meet the full-year pre-tax profit expectations of at least £20 million. That's $35.5 million. The company said that sales for the latest book in the series, Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince, were strong and in line with expectations. So news there that Bloomsbury, um, a couple of years ago, one of the UK's smaller publishers, is still going absolutely through the roof because of the Harry Potter books. Terry Pratchett, um, one of the best-selling authors in the UK, and one of the best-selling authors in the world, actually one of the most shoplifted um, authors in the UK, has said that um, his hit book, The Wee Free Man, could be being made into a film. At present, he's in talks with a number of people about the possibility of turning that book into a film, and the film website Variety says it will be shot by Spider-Man director Sam Raimi and could be a very big movie indeed. HMV, who, um, if you've been following Mobilibs Radio News over the end of last year, want to take over the second largest um, book chain in the UK, Otikas. Well, the inquiry about that takeover um, with the Competition Commission is um, starting this week. The first question, um, the first, the Competition Commission will first question a delegation from the Publishers Association, led by CEO Ronnie Williams and President Richard Charkin. Um, they'll be accompanied by John Makinson, the Penguin Chairman, and CEO Peter Roche, Deputy CEO of Hachette Leverie UK, and Ian Hudson from Random House Group. 
and all concerned will be deciding whether um, the HMV takeover of Articus will um, will mark competition and um, the possibility of buying books at a good price in the UK. There's still still a lot of speculation about this. A lot of people are still wondering which is the best way to go. Uh, an awful lot of readers have complained about Articus being taken taken over by the HMV Waterstones Group and just producing one um, very dominant book conglomerate in the UK. But then um, a lot of people have also suggested that or wanted to pay to complete because HMB are very big and two there's not that much competition in the book market in the UK anyway Random House um, very big publisher in the UK is taking steps to prevent the sales of manuscripts proof proofs and advanced copies and free finished books on internet sites such as eBay um, it's issued a very clear warning to its staff that unauthorized sale of company property is taken very seriously and may be a disciplinary matter, and that copies distributed externally will carry a clear notice as to their use, stressing that they are not for sale. So, um, impecunious bloggers and other folk who are lucky enough to get proofs, um, take warning, you can't be selling them anymore, because Random House are going to get um, very cross if you do. Last week, um, the southwest of England um, saw the launch of the Great Reading Adventure which is the UK's biggest book club, and um, it is hoped that 100,000 people will join in reading Around the World in 80 Days, Jules Verne's classic tale of Phileas Fogg's race to circumnavigate the Earth. The Great Reading Adventure has been an annual feature of Bristol's literary life, um, the biggest town in the southwest, for the past three years, and this year the event is expanding its reach to reach the whole of the southwest, um, beyond Bristol, and into the whole of the Avon area. Between January and March each year, everyone in the region is encouraged to read, read the same book, chosen on the grounds of its connection with the area. Um, the inaugural title was uh, Robert Louis Stevenson's Treasure Island, which begins in Bristol, and the second was John Wyndham's The Day of the Triffids, and that was chosen because of its engagement with um, environmental issues. Oxford's World's Classics have published a special edition of the book, featuring Wallace and Gromit on the cover, for the 2006 reading adventure, which will run for 80 days. Uh, 50,000 copies of a specially adapted children's version have also been produced for younger readers. The 2006 um, Great Reading Adventure is supported by the Heritage Lottery Fund and the Arts Council um, England South West. And it's sponsored by First Great Western, who are a um, rail company. So yes, the um, Around the World in 80 Days Reading Adventure, I think I might read that myself. And um, last but not least, the news in the UK... Um, today an interesting one this last year uh, David Beckham the um, soccer player we call it football over here of course and um, won a special prize at the British Book Awards or the Nibbies because his book My Side was the fastest selling biography or autobiography uh, of all time um, David Beckham's wife um, an ex Spice Girl um, famously confessed to, to never having um, read a book uh, fairly recently but David Beckham has now been given the chance to judge one of the country's most prestigious book awards. The Real Madrid and England football star has been made an honorary fellow of the Academy of British Book Awards on the grounds that in 2004 um, his book um, sold so quickly. He can now vote alongside uh, Alan Bennett, J.K. Rowling, Salman Rushdie in one of um, publishing's glitziest awards. Beckham could even attend the ceremony. Other honorary fellows from the, um, the soccer world include Paul Gascoigne 
and to Alex Ferguson, who's the manager of Manchester United. Um, the awards will be presented at Grosvenor House Ceremony, hosted by Richard Madeley and Judy Finnegan, who I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, who are a TV couple who've um, really been pushing books and reading on their television show. So that's the news from the UK. Um, all the best for 2006, everyone, and I'll speak to you soon. Bye-bye now. In 2002, acting on a tip from a senior executive at one of the biggest conglomerate publishing houses in the world, Moby Lives, the blog, conducted a year-long survey of the New Yorker magazine, checking the table of contents each and every week to see how many of the contributors were women. As it turned out, the results were not encouraging. Less than a quarter of the magazine's contributors turned out to be women. In July, midway through the survey, Editor-in-Chief David Remnick was interviewed by USA Today about the survey. He promised things would get better. They didn't. On average, the contributions by women actually fell for the rest of the year. Moby Lives has decided to revisit the issue, this time checking out not just The New Yorker, but some of our other leading literary publications. Okay, it's time to continue our look at the New York Review of Books. I've got my, you know, I, su I subscribe, so I've got my, my special, extra special subscriber issue here. Now, we, the last one we looked at was the special pre-holiday issue. There were, there were two women amongst the 16 contributors in that edition. Now we've got the, f the first post-holiday edition. I'm looking at, the, at the, uh, the issue of January 12th, 2006. Hit the newsstands a couple days ago. Uh, let's see, at the table of contents, once again, it looks like 16 bylines here. So here we, here we go. Let's see how many of these bylines are men. Last time it was 2 out of 16. That was, that was 12%. See if they can improve on that. Uh, John Gray is the first one. That's, that's definitely a guy. They're off to a bad start. Andrew Butterfield, that's another guy. Russell Baker, oh, that, that, that's a famous guy. Megan O'Rourke, there's Megan O'Rourke. That's a woman right there. Bill McKibben. Uh, is next James Hansen, Ian Baruma, Charles Simic, uh -oh, William H. McNeil, Patricia Storis. Look at that. There's another woman right there, Patricia Storis. That's two women so far. Pankaj Mishra. That's that. That's a guy. I I looked that one up earlier. Stephen Kinzer. It's definitely a guy. Jeff Madrick, uh, Lauren Stein. I got a little excited for a minute, but I looked him up. That's that's another guy. Joseph Kerman. And the last one, Jamie Gambrell. It's a woman. Three women out of 16. They've improved. They've improved. It was only two out of 16 last time. Maybe this is the influence of Moby Lives, huh? Let's see what that is. Uh, we just do a little math here for a minute. The uh, three out of 16, that's carry the one, set aside the shoehorn. That's 19%. 19% about. Um, so they've got a two-week average going here. Let's see. Let's see. It's... 12% last time, 19% this time. It's about 14.5% women appearing in the pages of the New York Review of Books. Hmm. We're men and friends until the end, and none of us are sissies. At night we sleep in separate beds and blow each other kisses. And blow each other kisses. Men, men, men. It's a ship all filled with men. So throw your rubbers overboard. There's no one here but men. Amen. 
You're the editor of Australian Bookseller and Publisher Magazine. Tell me, what's the best-selling book in Australia right now? Right now, um, it is um, a novel called White Thorn by Bryce Courtenay, who is um, probably one of Australia's best-selling mass-market novelists. Um, he's one of the probably few Australian novelists who uh, is a reliable, sure seller. Um, he comes out with a great big doorstop of a book every second Christmas, so... Uh, People wait, wait for them. It's hardly high literature, but they sell scads. So when you say mass market, is it published in a paperback format originally, or is it a hardcover? No, they come out in, in hardback first. Um, and so they, they're always enormous sort of uh, family epic kind of books. Um, so they're published, published in hardback. Um, the retail price is 50 Australian dollars, but um, they're very heavily discounted. So um, it's very unlikely that anyone's actually paying $50 for them. Hmm. And would you say of the bestseller list in Australia, the majority of the authors are Australian, or are they other nationalities? Um, it varies. I mean, looking right at the moment, at, for instance, this at the weekly top ten, um, one, two, three, four, five, five of the ten books are by Australian authors, so half and half. It, it varies. It would depend if, I mean, we had, um, for a, country with a population of 20 million, we sold over a million copies of the Da Vinci Code last year, in the last year. So, you know, there are still, international blockbusters still do dominate. Harry Potter is enormous. Um, but uh, Australian authors sell in respectable quantities and, and make the charts. Hmm. Um, do you find that Australians just read in general in other languages, or is it all in English? Well, Australia is an extremely multicultural country. Um, more than a third of, of the people who live in Australia were either born in another country or their parents were. But the, I mean, English is the absolutely dominant public language, so um, certainly very little domestic foreign language publishing. Um, the major cities have foreign language bookstores, um, and you can certainly buy books in the major community languages, um, Greek, Italian, Vietnamese, Arabic, Turkish, but they're not, they're very much... Um, Small volume things. Nothing like, for instance, the Spanish language market in the U.S., which I understand is, you know, quite a, a large market in, and in quite a mainstream way. Mm -hmm. And of those titles that are sold in English, I mean, do you have a lot of books in translation that are popular? Say, books from Italian writers or German writers. A fair number. Um, they tend to be sort of the the large names. I mean, you know, if there's a new book by Gabriel Garcia Marquez or uh, Umberto Eco, then that gets released here and much the same time scale that we get released in the US or UK, and they sell in respectable numbers. Some of our smaller um, local publishers have a very good line into um, some interesting overseas books. Uh, Texts Publishing, which has recently formed a joint venture with Canongate in the UK, um, has brought out some, some very interesting novels. Um, Niccolò Amanetti's I'm Not Scared from the Italian, they translated and brought out about two years ago now, and that did very well. Um, so it's unusual for an overseas translated book to be published in Australia first, um, but I think that was a case where text actually did buy the rights 
directly from the Italian and organize the translation themselves. But most of the time it would be someone who already has an international reputation and we simply get the English language edition at pretty much the same time as the US or the UK would. Speaking of the US and the UK, um, I'm curious to hear, I mean, you're always associated so much with the UK book market. Mm. Would you say that you're driven more by the UK market than the American market? We are, and there are, there are sort of legal and copyright reasons for that. Um, that we do still effectively have a closed market here um, where um, booksellers aren't, are legally not allowed to import, um, for, for instance, American mass market editions of a book if there is a British edition because the British edition takes, takes copyright um, prominence. But there's, we have a complicated copyright law, but fundamentally, yes, the, the, British, the British edition is still... Um, usually the, the legal edition that, that should be sold in Australia. But increasingly the time, the time gap is, is changing and lessening. There's a lot more, obviously, people using the internet and um, ordering through Amazon and seeing books um, being reviewed overseas much quicker. So the local publishers have had to be a lot faster in, in bringing out um, editions of overseas books than they used to be. Uh, and also along those lines, um, as you know, well know, in America, the publishing industry is being dominated by a few key players. Mm. And I know that um, a lot of Australian publishers are also outposts of British companies. Um, what's the indie scene like there? Are there small publishers who are making a go of it? Uh, I know Allen and Unwin is, is somewhat big, but are there other small There are, places? yeah. I mean, Allen and Unwin um, are, are an in-betweeny in that sense. I mean, they're... they're um, an independently owned company, but they they would certainly count among our our top ten um, commercial publishers, alongside the local companies of of Penguin and HarperCollins and and Random House. Um, there are some very strong um, independent publishers. Text, who I mentioned before, um, Scribe Publishing, who's based in Melbourne. Um, there are quite a few. Um, yeah, Hardy Grant. There, there are there are quite a number of of smaller and medium sized Australian publishers who. Um, do punch above their weight. They they sell buy and sell international rights. Um, they have name authors who sell well in Australia and who they're also able to sell overseas rights to. So yeah, it's quite a quite a vibrant scene. And are there American authors who are popular in Australia who we may not expect? Um, I can't, oh, that, that's caught me a little <laughs> off guard. Actually, I don't don't really know. I mean, I say we 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 sell in. Um, enormous quantities of, of the blockbusters and the Dan Browns and and, and everything else. Um, as I say, some of those um, smaller independent publishers will sometimes come across um, independent American books that um, they'll bring out a local edition of that uh, end up doing quite well. But, um, so I'll have a, a quick flick through some of the recent charts and see if there's anything that catches my eye. Okay. Well, in the meantime, are there any um, Australian authors who maybe aren't quite as prominent in America as they should be yet, and someone you might recommend for our American readers to pick up? Oh, there are lots of them. An interesting one, um, speaking of, of Alan Unwin, there, um, Alex Miller, who's one of their long-term authors, um, has the, Alan Unwin described he's finally tipped over. He's been writing for about 25 years, and he's, he's finally got to the stage where they feel he's a, a recognized name. Um, I'm actually not sure if, if his, um, many of his books have been released in the US, but uh, if they haven't, yeah, track, track Alex Miller down. Um, there and he's a fiction writer or a non-fiction yes, writer? Yes, yeah, a, a novelist, yeah. Um, who else would be good? 
Um, I think Shane Maloney's um, crime novels, um, although they're very they're very Australian and they're they're based around Melbourne, um, they've been translated into a number of European languages already, and I know um, and Japanese as well. I think so. Um, he's certainly been a, a European success, um, and I think that Americans could take to him, particularly those who sort of write comedy crime, um, perhaps in a slightly uh, Wachowski sort of way. Um, who else would be good? I mean, I think the name, the big, the big names in Australian writing, like Tim Winton and, and Peter Carey, are, are reasonably well known in the US. Mm-hmm. Well, Tim, thanks so much. We really appreciate it. As again, Tim Carnell, the editor of Australian Bookseller and Publisher Magazine. Okay, thanks very much. Philip Gravich, the new editor-in-chief of the Paris Review, is on the line. Philip, welcome to Mobiliz Radio. Nice to be talking to you. Um, when you took over the magazine, you weren't exactly a controversial choice, quite the opposite. In fact, even George Plimpton's widow lauded your selection. But you did step into a somewhat controversial situation. Plimpton had famously edited the magazine for 50 years and until his death in 2003, and then his assistant, Bridget Hughes, took over. And a year later, you replaced her amidst rumors that she'd been butting heads with the board of directors over the direction of the, of the magazine. Um, it must have been a difficult situation for you to, to step into to, to, at the start. Well, not really. I mean, I, I, to the extent that there was a transition there, um, after a, a founder and uh, an editor who'd run a magazine who was really so personally identified with it, George Plimpton, uh, for its first half century, um, there's always a groping after a death like that and a transition like that for a sense of direction. Uh, by the time that uh, the question of you know the possibility of my editing the magazine came up, um, there I, I had no involvement with any uh, of that discussion. Those issues were never raised. Uh, where the magazine had been in the year year to year and a half since his death was barely even an issue. The question was what it had been in its, uh, at its best and what it could be in its future that would uh, mean that it was not a magazine simply depending on a legacy but going forward. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so um, I had, uh, from the beginning, uh, a board of directors that was looking for a magazine editor who would give it a very strong uh, sense of his own personality and a strong stamp and going forward. That was what I was interested in knowing. Mm-hmm. And uh, I... I really have had uh, just the best support from them and the best kind of uh, vibe here ever since. Mm-hmm. Um, so what was really remarkable to me was, uh, you know, in the wake of the death of uh, George Plimpton, who was so identified with the magazine, mm-hmm. to find instead of uh, difficulties or uh, uncertainties, just a, a huge reservoir of goodwill and a huge desire for the magazine to kind of become something new that lived up to its legacy but wasn't bound by it. Right. So how do you respond to that? What will be, what will be different about the, the Gurevich Paris Review? Well, I think uh, nothing uh, dramatic and the very sort of, you know, radically changing it in the first uh, issues or first year. We have two issues out now. The first one came out 
uh, just about Labor Day, and we had the second one uh, just after Thanksgiving in, mm-hmm. the, in well, in, in early December. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're working on the third and the fourth already. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, sort of the most immediate thing I did was I, um, I redesigned the actual physical look of the magazine, mm-hmm. uh, which, far from being kind of uh, turning around against <laughs> tradition was it's something that the magazine did many times as it went along the mm-hmm. look of the magazine um, in its earliest issues it was printed in Paris on very rough uh, paper with beautiful old sort of uh, wood uh, and letter press uh, right. printing um, and uh, back in those days they had a hard enough time holding all the pieces together that they sometimes didn't have the same font through the whole issue mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and uh, and then it changed it became by the time that I uh, came along it had become a very thick book um, physically kind of cumbersome and block-like, and uh, I thought it was time for a, a new, livelier uh, sort of sense of how it looked and how it felt. It's always been a hybrid between a magazine and a book. Mm-hmm. Uh, by virtue of being quarterly, um, we come out four times a year with a, with a real readable paperback anthology. And I thought the magazine should look more like a magazine, more than a paperback thick book. Mm-hmm. It should be a magazine that uh, was comfortable and physically just to hold and carry around and to read. And that, that that should sort of reflect the fact that here we were going forward. So I mean, some of that sounds cosmetic. It's very difficult to describe the difference in the magazine design mm-hmm. uh, verbally on the air. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, you changed the trim is, size. There was a huge response to it. We made it a little bit bigger, yeah. taller, wider. Yeah. Uh, it's considerably thinner spine. Uh, the pages hang open. We changed the paper. We put in a kind of brighter, fresher font. Mm-hmm. We introduced uh, color photography. Um, they'd always been these very substantial part of the magazine. The tradition of the magazine had always been um, visual art portfolios. Mm-hmm. Uh, everything from introducing Giacometti's etchings to the American public mm-hmm. uh, uh, to uh, having early Warhol things and uh, Christo posters and, and, and really the major artists of the time uh, were often in the magazine, and I thought one of the things I'd really like to do is to bring a kind of documentary uh, street photography, real-time, you know, not posed photography mm-hmm. uh, by the living masters mm-hmm. into the magazine, because increasingly I find, uh, to my astonishment, with, there are fewer and fewer places that publish serious photo essays, mm-hmm. narrative essays. Our first issue, we had a 20-page uh narrative photo essay with no text, mm-hmm. just images, mm-hmm. uh, by Gilles Paris, the great uh, French-born uh, photojournalist, all from Northern Ireland. Uh, in the new issue, we have uh, the first publication ever of a uh, extremely gifted and promising young uh, Korean photographer uh, who was photographing North Koreans, uh, refugees who had come to live in South Korea. Mm-hmm. Um, the magazine has uh, continued to publish, uh, always through the years, one of its great features is uh, the interviews, the Writers at Work series. Right. And um, that is something that we're only seeking to perfect. Um, so that will continue? That will continue. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is, I think, a much more inventive approach to the features department, the nonfiction department. Mm-hmm. And uh, nonfiction has always been a mainstay of the magazine, mm-hmm. uh, with the interviews, with uh, writers' journals, memoirs, uh, all sorts of features, including travelogues over the years. Uh, in the first issue that uh, we brought out, 
we had an extraordinary thing that we uh, I found uh, through the translator uh, from Chinese uh, by the Chinese dissident uh, poet Lao Yi Wu, uh, and and Lao Yu is uh, somebody who was thrown in jail after Tiananmen Square for mm-hmm. writing protest poetry. And when he came out of jail, he'd spent a lot of time with a, a different stripe of uh, character than you might have met in the mm-hmm. poetry scene. Mm-hmm. And he was also ostracized, banned from living in Beijing, uh, unable to work. So he became a drifting street musician, and he started interviewing these characters on what he called the lowest rung of society. Um, we published three of these interviews, which are completely extraordinary, one with a professional mourner, one with a human trafficker, and one with a public toilet manager. And they are witty, funny, odd, colloquial, uh, sort of oral history accounts of the life of sort of the Chinese margins, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. the Chinese lower depths, uh, that we've had a just an incredible response from readers uh, who, for whom it was the first time they'd ever seen anything like this, and even from China scholars mm-hmm. who were saying, you know, this is just this is great stuff. Um, that's the kind of thing that I think the new Paris Review or my uh, my time at the Paris Review will be looking for much, much more. Mm-hmm. What about um, other kinds of nonfiction writing? I mean, you come into the job acclaimed as an investigative journalist and a political reporter. Will there be that kind of uh, journalism in the magazine? There will of a certain kind. I mean, I've always... uh, This is a magazine which will always privilege great writing. And so the focus will be on the storytelling and on the writing rather than on sort of getting a scoop or having a, you know, um, a great soundbite from a public figure. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and we're a quarterly. We're not going to be trying to chase the news. Mm -hmm. Um, But we have... uh, we have some things in the works, uh, which will be coming out. Um, I, I, I hesitate to speak about work that isn't finished yet. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but certainly where I have commissioned pieces, uh, one very much here in America, one uh, from Africa, for instance, that's in the works now, from writers who had been immersed in long-term projects and had grown very close to their subjects so that they had the material to really be able to write about them. Mm-hmm. Um, which deal very much with public events, but in in a way that I think was quite different from the way even other well-written uh, magazines, even the way to say that the the New Yorker, or the Atlantic, or Harper's might approach a story. Mm-hmm. There will be le- you know there will be less of a sort of news peg mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and more of a focus on uh, character and, and and personality. And a search for stories that uh, just might not otherwise appear. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, well, the I... magazine's always had a commitment to publishing both relatively unknown mm-hmm. or uh, brand new writers, and um, also work that, for one reason or another, might not find its way into a more mass market publication uh, at that stage. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, but which quite often, let's say, early Philip Roth, early Jack Kerouac, early V.S. Naipaul. Uh, early Jeffrey Eugenides, these are good examples of people who, uh, before long, actually didn't seem so marginal. Well, one thing that I've seen you commenting on is is some of those older features of the, of the magazine, such as fiction and poetry. Um, you made an interesting comment about your plans for poetry, um, which is that you were interested in fu- pu- publishing more poems by fewer poets. Uh, what's the, what's that decision about? Well, the decision is that the magazine has always been very committed to publishing poetry, but mm-hmm. by the time that I came along, it was publishing something like, you know, often 20, 25 poets in an issue. And there'd be one or two 
at most three poems usually by, by a given poet. Mm-hmm. And these would be sort of scattered uh, a little bit like shuffled into the deck mm-hmm. throughout the magazine. Sometimes mm-hmm. you'd have four poets bunched together. Sometimes you'd have a couple of poems. It really felt almost as if they were put in there uh, according to where the pagination made sense. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I found that this is not that different from the way poetry is published in, in most American magazines, mm-hmm. um, where you see one poem by a poet, and it's almost like uh, spot art. It's almost like a standalone right. illustration. Right. It's a single frame. You look at it. Maybe you like it a lot. But unless you're really deeply immersed in the poetry world, you don't even know where to turn to see more by this poet. Right. Um, and if you don't like it, you might be making a very unfair snap judgment uh, that, ah, that poet's not for me. Mm-hmm. Um, because, as we all know, it takes a, a fair handful of poetry, at the, at the very minimum, to start to get a sense of what a poet's up to. Mm-hmm. And so my decision was to publish, uh, instead of doing it the way it had been done, to feature three or so poets in a given issue, each with a portfolio of five or six poems, mm-hmm. uh, self-contained, much the same as one would have an art portfolio, a photo essay, or a, a chunk of fiction, um, where you really then got an opportunity to acquaint yourself with, it, with this poet. Mm-hmm. Um, quite often there's a range between the poems. Uh, some, some will be longer, some will be shorter, some will be in uh, different kinds of voices or different thematic concerns uh, that enlarges very much the sense of what all these poems are doing there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that you actually um, get the experience of familiarizing yourself with a poet. And I find, you know, I'm um, like many people probably, uh, not somebody who's followed with incredible attention every stage of poetry. That's why I have poetry editors here mm-hmm, as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but I like to read poetry and I like to be able to feel like I'm getting somewhere with it. Mm-hmm. And uh, this uh, portfolio uh, approach has been really, really, really well received. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I knew that I thought it might uh, distress some poets. Mm. Uh, I haven't met a poet who didn't think it was a good idea. They'd be distressed in, by what? The fact well, that there were I mean, fewer poets? That we or? might be publishing fewer poets. Yeah. But, all, I mean, obviously some poets feel like it's too bad if we can't get in. <laughs> right. Uh, but I've never, uh, I've never really heard anybody say it isn't a better way to read poetry. Yeah. And um, so, you know, the interesting thing is it's, it's kind of win-win in the sense that it's better for a poet, mm-hmm. right? If you get accepted, it's a nicer way to showcase poetry. Mm-hmm. And on the other hand, if uh, for a reader, it's a more interesting and deeper way to read. Mm-hmm. And um, so that's been one of the things that uh, has been reorganized here. Mm-hmm. And uh, we certainly get we get vast numbers of poetry submissions. Mm-hmm. Um, we have buckets of them every few weeks that right. we send out to our poetry editors, Charles Simic and Megan O'Rourke. And, um, and the response has been very good. And again, we've had... Uh, newcomer poets and established masters. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is kind of a Paris Review idea: mm-hmm. uh, is always to have new writers uh, sitting there side by side on the page with with the living masters. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you know, some people have asked me whether more than investigative journalists, you know, will, will the magazine become, in some sense, more politically engaged? And in any partisan sense of that term, no. Mm-hmm. We are not a magazine that, we're a literary magazine, and the idea is to publish really good writing. But writing that concerns itself actively with 
grappling with, understanding, and enlarging our sense of a very complicated world at a time where politics is pretty inescapable? Mm -hmm. Sure. Mm -hmm. Um, We have a remarkable piece of uh, fiction by the Chinese writer uh, Ma Jian in the current issue. Uh, He uh, lives in London. Uh, It's a piece he wrote about going to Tibet um, uh, in well, 15, 20 years ago, mm-hmm. and witnessing there a sky burial. Mm-hmm. Marginally, you could describe it as having a political context. Here's a Chinese writer writing about occupied Tibet, uh, and, and later he was basically forced into exile from China for the way that he wrote about Tibet. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's not a political note in the piece. Right. Uh, and certainly this is something the magazine, a, a kind of fiction the magazine has always featured. Yeah, it's always had an international air, obviously, starting in Paris as it did. Uh, it focused more on European, uh, introducing European writers to American audiences. But um, my feeling is that, well, one thing you, you asked about, sort of where things were out of the magazine when I came along. Right. There'd been talk about having an international issue. And I said, will Americans be involved in that? Will that include American writers? Because if not, it's just a foreigner's issue. Right. And to me, every issue should be international. Right. And part of the, if we, if we use the word international to mean everybody but us, that's not actually accurate. Right, right. And um, so my idea is these things should, you know, what I'm interested in is good writing. I don't care where it comes from. Well, it seems to me that you are trying to breathe new life into the form that is the literary journal. Um, the only other, well, the, my question to you is, do you have any models in doing that, uh, and how do you make it work? The, the the Paris Review was rather famously a small circulation. Many suspected that George Clinton himself was making up the difference from subscriptions. Um, how, do you, how do you make this work? Uh, financially? Yeah. Well, the Paris Review uh, has, is a basically run as a non-profit foundation, mm-hmm. uh, has been only for the last uh, six or seven years. Mm-hmm. Prior to that, for the first almost 50 years, it was just a staggeringly unprofitable for-profit company. Mm-hmm. And George uh, himself was not underwriting it uh, by direct cash inflow, uh, you know, injections, but he right. was taking no salary, right. uh, running it out of his own home right um, and so forth so the overhead was pretty low mm-hmm. on the other hand there was never any concerted effort to pursue subscriptions mm-hmm. um, we now have the first ever circulation director and mm-hmm. um, we have increased our paid circulation by 25 percent in the last six months mm-hmm. um, we have doubled our advertising income this is just just right out of the gate mm-hmm. um, we have done all of this uh, without a lot of outlay. Mm-hmm. And I expect that we can grow uh, substantially the sort of business side of it without becoming profitable, mm-hmm. um, but in such a way that the amount of money that we depend on raising from uh, backers uh, should become less and less uh, over the next few years. Mm-hmm. And we've also had a tremendous uh, sort of surge of support from people who really love the idea of this magazine, mm-hmm. who believe that the the sort of need for it is as great, if not greater, than ever, um, because there are increasingly few places where one can find really quite new writing and sort of inventive juxtapositions of it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, 
you know, there's a, there's a kind of liberating quality to working at a magazine that's not entirely driven by the marketplace. Right. Uh, I happen to come from marketplace-driven publishing and have no problem with that idea. I mm-hmm. don't think that that's corrupt or evil or bad. Or, mm-hmm. um, I think it's desirable and very much where one should be always heading. Mm-hmm. And I don't see any tension whatsoever between the idea of being sort of uh, artistically and creatively inventive and being commercial. Um, that just seems wrong to me. Yeah. Um, only if you start compromising or doing stupid stuff. Well, I don't think you can be accused uh, too seriously of being commercial. You're you're publishing more poems. You're you're publishing more photo art. Um, that's not a charge that's going to stick. But it it is an interesting attempt to, uh, as I say, breathe breathe new life into it. That that. Uh, I don't see being replicated in many other places. There was one magazine that perhaps comes to mind, which was Double Take, uh-huh. um, which was interested in, in some of the same things, um, um, but that didn't work there. The so. Bob Coles magazine, yeah. It was, um, they, I don't quite understand the story there, but I get the feeling that there was a business model that involved spending a great, you know, they had a lot of money behind them, right. including some from, I believe, Bruce Springsteen. Right. And um, they burned through quite a bit of it. Right. Um, trying with a very ambitious kind of subscription acquisition. Also, it was it looked to me, without knowing anything about the actual bills, but it looked to me like an expensive magazine to produce. Double yes. take. Yes. Uh, for listeners who don't know, was um, it was a quarterly, but it was very heavily devoted to publishing high quality photography. Right. It was a large uh, format too. Large format pages, very expensive paper, very high quality four color production. Mm-hmm. Um, they were paying writers uh, quite well. Um, I published there once and was very happy to do so. But, <laughs> it, but it was a magazine also that had more of a, um, a kind of explicit social agenda, mm-hmm. uh, I think, you know, that documentary tradition being, in some sense, a social activist tradition. Right, right. Um, here we're also doing a, a feature that I introduced, which I'm calling Documents. Mm-hmm. Um, and it can vary a great deal. We've... Um, We've had, uh, in the first issue, what we did is we had facsimile reproductions of the notebook pages of the poet Elizabeth Bishop. Mm -hmm. Remarkable work, Mm -hmm. um, previously unpublished, of of drafts and sketches Mm -hmm. of poems uh, that she had left unfinished at her death. Mm -hmm. Um, And also just visually quite beautiful to see these pages Mm -hmm. yellowed Mm -hmm. uh, with her hand and doodles and so forth. Last time we had a, uh, a an unpublished, previously unpublished Nabokov poem from 1913 when he was, I think, not quite 20 yet, mm-hmm. and um, which was from his archives and was newly translated for the first time in English by his his son Dmitri. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a and we have more ambitious kind of uh, projects going with various um, archives and and uh, unlikely material where the sort of physical object and the written document it doesn't have to be written as writing mm-hmm. as a kind of that, that kind of gets you out of the lull of um conventional magazine writing mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. um well you're two issues down have you got the magazine near where you want it to be yet oh i've got the magazine about where i'd like i'm pleased with where we are for two issues uh-huh. <laughs> um, but uh, i hardly feel like my ambitions are met i mean i um the exciting thing here we've been working without any inventory from issue to issue right now mm-hmm. it'd be great to have a little bit it'd be nice to be sort of working one issue ahead mm-hmm. uh, to be confident that the one that's going to press is basically all taken care of and now right. we're thinking down six months ahead right um but the exciting thing of working in 
without inventory is that we're really constantly reading, looking for things with this, you know, obviously we, we take only a fraction of what we see. And there's always the risk in this business of feeling a little bit more like a rejection machine than anything else. But we're yeah. reading with hunger. We're, not, we're looking to find, <laughs> not to pass. And, uh, and there's a lot of excitement when you start to feel each issue come together. Yes. Um, and we're still just exploring. the. A magazine is an evolving thing. It's part of its pleasure. Um, it, it, each issue is a kind of new iteration of the possibilities of the thing. And uh, it's fun to explore those. We're having a good time here. Well, let me close by just asking you about something other than the magazine, which is your own writing. I think uh, your name immediately summons up uh, uh, a couple of things. One is, is either your, your book about the Rwandan genocide, uh, we wish to inform you that tomorrow we will be killed with our families, um, or your name summons up um, the phrase New Yorker writer. Mm -hmm. um, but one thing that got little mentioned, for example, in, in all the press about you taking over at the Paris Review was the fact that you have a pretty deep background as a fiction writer. You went to the MFA program at uh, Columbia, um, have published uh, some short fiction, and you also were an editor at, a, at another wonderful literary journal uh, at Columbia. Um, what's up for your, your fiction writing? Will you be doing any more of that in the future? May do. Yeah? I've always found it's best to do it than to talk about it. Uh -huh. <laughs> um, but it's never something I thought of myself abandoning. I was writing fiction, and I stumbled into journalism mm -hmm. um, and discovered that I very much loved reporting and that, uh, if anything, I felt also that it was good for fiction writing to get out of the house. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> and I was lucky to have a lot of opportunities to pursue that mm -hmm. uh, in my mostly in my 30s was when th that it happened to be mm -hmm. a time when I also felt open to just traveling a lot mm -hmm. um, and and so I was I was I was available and the opportunities were available mm -hmm. and um, and I pursued that but never with the idea that this is sort of all I do or what I do only forever mm -hmm. um, to me uh, the biggest, probably the biggest single disadvantage of, 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 of doing long-form magazine work, uh, piece after piece after piece, is uh, that one ends up spending less time writing than reporting and dealing with logistics. Right. Uh, you know, for a three-month project on a foreign piece that I would do, uh, I would maybe spend the last three weeks uh, buckled down writing around the clock. Mm -hmm. And that's, it felt like a poor ratio mm -hmm. um, to be doing that four times a year instead of uh, more. And um, so I'm getting a great deal of pleasure out of the actual just sort of immersion in the texts that I'm editing here mm -hmm. um, and thinking you know, very concretely about writing a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. um, we'll, we'll but I've never, I mean, I would no more say that I'm done writing journalism than I'm done writing fiction. Mm -hmm. I, uh, I'm still a staff writer at The New Yorker. Mm -hmm. um, I have a couple of things that are, that are sort of cooking along in the background. Mm -hmm. um, and I did decide when I took this job that to do it right and to kind of really make this place work well um, and become something uh, vital and, uh, and, and, and in a sense essential to the culture, if I'm at all successful, uh, I probably needed to give it a full, you know, year to 18 months. Do you have, uh, you've been at the job uh, a certain amount of time now, do, do you, does it look to you like you'll have the time to keep writing? Will they, will oh, yeah. that be a conflict? Oh, yeah. 
Uh, you know, look, George Plimpton got a lot of writing done when he ran the Paris Review. That's true. Um, he cranked out the books, mm-hmm. and as I always point out, he also was a, a journalist, a reporter. I mean, mm-hmm. he went out and did reporting and writing. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bill Buford, when he ran Granta, did a great deal of writing. Mm-hmm. Ford Maddox Ford ran a magazine. Got a lot of writing done. Yeah. Um, there are, I mean, writers who become editors. I mean, David Remnick has been extremely productive, and he's got a hell of a lot more demanding job than I do. Mm-hmm. Um, there are writers, uh, he probably would have written a lot more if he weren't doing that job, but but that's, you know, so you're doing two things, obviously means that you're divided attention. Mm-hmm. But I do think that there is nothing about it that um, precludes or prohibits writing, and mm-hmm. then, uh, if I did, I wouldn't be doing it. Will your byline appear in the Paris Review? Uh, probably not anytime soon. I'm, I'm, I'm working on one interview right now. Mm-hmm. So I'll do some interviews. Uh, I, you know, I'm all... I'm, <laughs> My presence kind of hovers through it, you know, the magazine without, while being quite varied and um, diverse, uh, certainly I think is starting to bear a stamp that, that corresponds to my interests and my tastes and my passions, um, and uh, I'll write little introductions, but I don't, I, don't, I don't feel a need to interfere with my byline. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I'm much more interested in making space for, uh, you know, we've published, in the first issue we published... A, a debut uh, by an American writer, Lisa Halliday, who'd never published a short story before, came in unsolicited over the transom, and a uh, terrific story, had a great response, uh, has been put on one of the National Public Radio stories programs out of Chicago, mm-hmm. and so forth, right away, which is just great. You know, you see somebody who's been writing on their own for a long time, they send a story in, we liked it, and, uh, and uh, we got it out there, and things start happening for her. Yeah. And um, in the latest issue we have, um, in the current issue, the fall-winter issue, we have uh, a story by a young writer named Benjamin Percy, um, who's living in Madison, Wisconsin, but comes from Oregon, writing about uh, a town in Oregon. It's a fiction, uh, but about a town in Oregon is where it's set, uh, made sort of fatherless by the call-up of reservists for the Iraq War. Mm-hmm. Um, he hasn't yet published a book. He will in the next year. Uh, this story, again, came to us and uh, really... That's the exciting thing to do with the magazine, mm-hmm. uh, rather than entirely to publish myself. <laughs> well, Philip Gurevich, the new editor-in-chief of the Paris Review, thank you for coming on to Moby Lives Radio. That's uh, great talking to us. And that's it for this edition of Moby Lives Radio. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks, too, to our guest, Philip Gurevich, for coming on the show. And additional thanks, of course, to our staff, engineer Andrew Steinmetz, and our editors here at Melville House, Becky Kramer, Kelly Burdick, and publisher Valerie Marians. We hope you come back next week. We're going to be adding a new correspondent from India next week. Mark Thwaite will be back with the UK report. And we hope George Murray, our Canadian correspondent, will be back on the air telling us about what's going on in the Great North Way. That's all coming up next week. We'll be there. We hope you will be, too. In the meantime, don't forget, well, it's out there. El último habitante del planeta Con todo el dinero y se tomó su tiempo Pensó gastarlo todo en una noche Para que lo iba See
Seco 